Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in wherever you are. And as ever, we've got so much to cram in. The questions are always brilliant. They they top brilliance uh, this week. We've got questions which really shed light on other countries and the way they do things compared with here. We've got questions from France, Brussels, Switzerland, and all around the UK. That's coming up uh, shortly. I'm going to reflect on Rishi Sunak versus Rachel Reeves, the Chancellor versus Shadow Chancellor, after the political battle between Prime Minister and Leader of the Opposition. It is the most important uh, politically. Uh, so yeah, that will be my reflection in a minute before we get to your questions, if that's okay. Before then, uh, just a reminder that Rock and Roll Politics, the Barnard Castle special, is live at the Witham Arts Centre on Saturday, November the 6th, right next to Specsavers in Barnard Castle. It's uh, going to be an epic evening, and it, that one isn't being streamed live, so you have to get there. It will be a brand new one-off uh, the Barnard Castle special and the tickets are available on the Witham Art Centre website. I'll put the link up with the blurb to the podcast and get ready for that festive spirit. Rock and Roll Politics, the Christmas Sparrow special is live at King's Place on December the 9th. It's got to be your Christmas outing, you know, the festive outing. Um, but for those of you who listen to this uh, in Saigon, Australia, all those places in Europe I've already mentioned, well, I suppose you can't get to it that easily. It is being live streamed. And some of you have emailed me saying, oh, when are the live stream tickets coming on sale? Well, they're on sale now. I'll put that link into the podcast blurb as well. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to the Barnard Castle special on November the 6th. And then, of course, a great festive evening at King's Place on December the 9th. It's a Thursday night, start of a long weekend. Okay, it's budget week. And that brings to public prominence or media prominence, of course, uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, the Chancellor, and Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor. It was very interesting uh, watching Andrew Marr uh, interview both of them uh, on his Sunday show. And if you haven't seen it, it'll be on YouTube, uh, not YouTube, BBC iPlayer, and I recommend uh, taking a look. Because of this, in a way, watching R Rachel Reeves uh, develop as a public figure has been uh, very interesting and uh, positive. Do you remember when she was a member of Ed Miliband's shadow cabinet and she came in to do Newsnight late at night always a knackering daunting thing to have to do and the then editor Ian Katz either accidentally tweeted or it got out that he called her uh, I think boring snoring Rachel Reeves or something you know because actually Ed Miliband for all his interest in quite daring ideas had adopted the control free career of new labour there was a message and people had to stick to it and that was it. And that kind of made her robotic. But she has always wanted to be shadow chancellor and therefore chancellor. I remember bumping into her at um, a book festival when she was promoting her book on Labour women. 
in politics, or maybe it was women in politics generally. And I said something about, you know, she gave a good talk, actually, far from boring snoring. And I said, oh, yeah, that was quite leaderly. And, she, and I think she said something like, you know what, I want to be Chancellor. Um, this was the era when she wasn't even in the shadow cabinet. Um, so she's in the right post in terms of her own ambition. Uh, she has an authority with the media. And I think she has, and it's it, 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 not many do on the Labour side, that art of combining economic weight, uh, she worked for the Bank of England, etc., and understanding the political rhythms and constraints, especially of Labour in opposition. Ed Balls had it, an economist who could understand the politics, um, when he was a special advisor to Gordon Brown in the build-up to 1997. And Brown emphatically had it. Um, by the way, it's a very interesting contrast. In the build-up to 97, Gordon Brown was also up against a popular chancellor, Ken Clark, and yet managed to frame arguments in such a way uh, that, for once, Labour wasn't slaughtered at an election far from it in 97. Uh, because of what it was saying on the economy. She faces Rachel Reeves, also a popular Chancellor, in Rishi Sunak. So she is well cast. She is more lively and energetic as a public figure. I don't think Ian Katz would say now boring snoring uh, when she speaks. And I remember hearing an interview with a, uh, someone who she knew at Oxford saying she was a very lively speaker at debates in Oxford as a student. Well, some of that has come back, but she's got the authority of being an economist, you know, who's worked for the Bank of England, etc. So that is all uh, hopeful for the Labour wing of things because the Shadow Chancellor is a key appointment. And I actually think uh, Keir Starmer should do more dual things with her and portray the team uh, rather than rely on his current still poor uh, personal ratings in the polls. Um, but having said all of that, um, the performance that she gave uh, in the Marsh show on the early phase, which was about this bloody virus, which of course is raging again, was hesitant, formulaic and unclear. And I think it tells us a lot about why Labour are struggling in the opinion polls. So this is what happened. Um, Andrew Marr said, perfectly fairly, is Labour now calling for a move to Plan B in terms of responding to the raging virus? Now, Labour have got themselves into an awful mess over this. Um, you know, they are critical of the government with complete legitimacy. Um, at one point, it seemed to be that their shadow cabinet people were saying they supported Plan B. Then the leadership briefed that that wasn't the case. They wanted Plan A to be implemented more effectively. So Rachel Reeves arrived in the studio um, with this sort of burden of ambiguity over Labour's position. And she couldn't disguise it, even though she's become a better media performer. So first of all, in response to Andrew's question, she said, well, Labour have always said, we'll follow the science. 
uh, and uh, the Sage and others are saying that uh, we should be wearing masks on public transport, and Labour have always said that. But Labour would do more than that. It would do more to increase the uh, ventilation in some public buildings and would do more to address the issue of sick pay when people have to stay at home because they've uh, tested positive. Um, so Ma said, so does that mean you support Plan B? And again, she basically repeated herself in a way that kind of casual viewers would think, oh, she's avoiding the question. But she wasn't really avoiding the question. Um, she was, uh, but, but clearly the leadership is still wary of saying they support a move to Plan B. So she couldn't say it until the third time uh, when she did say yes, I think. Uh, to it um, but it had to be sort of extracted from her awkwardly and therefore she gave the impression that um, Labour weren't that clear and it would fuel uh, Boris Johnson's accusation about uh, Keir Starmer that he's Captain Hindsight because if it does all go wrong there's no doubt Keir Starmer will say that you should have acted earlier and Labour are sort of saying that but not clearly because and this is what I think that exchange tells us that uh, presumably their private polling or focus groups have told them that after Freedom Day in July Freedom Day Freedom Day um most voters are against the imposition of further constraints, so they don't want to appear on the wrong side of the electorate. But the problem of being a slave to focus groups and opinion polls is a paralysis. It scares you into doing anything at all um, because you might find a poll comes up that suggests you're in a position that the majority don't support. Or it looks hesitant and evasive and as if you're not at all clear what you would do which is the worst of all worlds in another national crisis and gets Boris Johnson who Dominic Cummings has christened as the trolley changing all over the place in response to what the Telegraph is saying and focus groups it gives him a free pass because if the Labour leadership are doing the same thing um, he can get away with it and he could just say oh, uh, Captain Hindsight blah, blah, blah. Now, it seems to me Labour has got, if you step back, a clear position. Plan A should be implemented more effectively. Uh, plan B should begin, because that's what the, all the top scientists and NHS leaders say should happen. But Labour's plan would be more comprehensive. Uh, it would involve improving buildings in terms of ventilation and in uh, making sure sick pay is adequate so people do stay off when they're tested as having got this thing. Uh, and then you say this, because obviously they're scared that they look as if they're the party depriving voters of freedom since Freedom Day, uh, which was instituted far too early by Johnson as ever. Then you say, why? We are advocating this with total confidence, not the hesitancy of Rachel Reeves uh, with Andrew Marr. You say with complete confidence, we are doing this because we want voters to be free from a greater risk of getting this virus. We want voters to be free 
to go to cinemas, to public places, to nightclubs. But we want them to be free to do so and travel on public transport. Free to do so, knowing that the risk of the virus is being minimised. So this is our freedom, the freedom to carry on going about our daily lives as much as possible, free as much as possible from the risk of the virus. Boris Johnson's freedom is the freedom to take the maximum risk of getting the thing. And if you sort of articulate that with robust, calm, authoritative confidence, you will find that the focus groups and opinion polls will move and that they will note a capacity to lead with authority and accessibility and with an awareness of their passion for an inverted commas freedom one of the most complicated multi-layered words in British politics now what was interesting to me was after Rachel Reeves uh, Rishi Sunak appeared now Rishi Sunak is uh, if you take a step back all over the place he is this self-proclaimed fiscal conservative he was asked in a questionnaire on Saturday whether he was uh, in favour of Keynes or Friedman. And he said Friedman without hesitation. Uh, there he is presiding over budget briefings of increased public spending on top of the spending he's already announced. Now, some of this will be, what's the phrase, smoke and mirrors? Smoking, I, I never know that phrase, but you know what I mean. Uh, when uh, when we come to see the detail, um, he will have imposed tough spending constraints in some areas. But the messaging is kind of Keynesian, uh, that it's good for the economy to spend because people get better trained, the better trained people become more productive, and the economy starts recovering more speedily and sustainably, to give one example. Transport in the north of England is a good thing because levelling up is a good thing, not just in itself, but for the economy. Um, now, say so we'll have to look at the figures, but Andy Burnham seemed to think this was genuinely new money going uh, on public transport in the north of England. Let's see. Uh, but there is a contradiction there. On the virus... He, Rishi Sunak, has been all over the place. Remember, he was against constraints last autumn and uh, persuaded Johnson to see a bunch of libertarian health specialists to persuade him not to impose the constraints that the more sensible wing of the government, uh, Matt Hancock, Michael Gove, Dominic Cummings, were all telling him to do. Um, so he's been all over the place. And he was shown by Andrew Marr a photo of him and others in the Commons not wearing a mask now that the advice is wear masks in crowded indoor places, of which the Commons is emphatically one. And yet, for all his contradictions and, I think, unproven skills as a senior minister, there's no doubt of one thing, Rishi Sunak is a very good interviewer and a confident interviewer. And a casual viewer would have left seeing someone utterly self-assured about the direction he's taking, even though the direction is far from clear when you st take a step back. Now, given, I think, that if you kind of step back from Rachel's interview, there was a clarity of message, but it appeared confused. And I think it appeared confused um, because of this fearful caution 
um, what happens before these big interviews is the night before, you know, a shadow cabinet member will get a briefing from the leader's office of the lines to take in certain fields. And it obviously was this one, you know, our main message is make plan A work and so on. But you've got to have a clear answer about plan B. You can't waffle around it. And they have one. And it wouldn't terrify the voters if it was explained, especially if it was wrapped round in terms of this notion of freedom. All successful leaders of the opposition always answer why they are proposing something. And in that answer, their poll uh, rating will be determined. And if uh, Labour have said and wrapped it around their belief that this actually frees people up uh, by lessening the risk of them getting the virus, along obviously with the whole vaccine process, um, they're in the game. And then if it is found that once again in this dark pattern, Boris Johnson has responded too slowly and tamely to the raging levels of infection. They can claim, in a way that voters would recognise, a degree of vindication in their argument. But if their argument is so evasive and unclear, they won't be able to, um, as well as diminishing the kind of public service element of opposition which is to clearly put what they consider to be a valid alternative course. So there we go. Uh, but more widely, it will be very interesting to watch, uh, I think, this uh, particular combination of Rishi Sunak and Rachel Reeves, because um, uh, so far she has been very impressive on the economic brief. I think her proposition, for example, to have uh, an office for a value in public spending or whatever it's going to be called um, is a good idea it's their equivalent to the office of budget responsibility that George Osborne proposed because it might open up some space to have a more grown-up debate about tax and spend in advance of an election um, <clears throat> when independent scrutiny is being proposed in this anti-politics era independent scrutiny is always a sort of quite clever device to reassure voters. Um, so I do think she is funda uh, 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 fundamentally a, a formidable and rising figure uh, in Labour's rank. Well, obviously, she, she's been made shadow chancellor. But as a performer, and as I say, someone who can combine economics and politics, which is very hard to do on the Labour side. Um, and yet she was thrown, I think, by questions on what Labour would do in response to the virus again. And, and that reflects a wider caution. Anyway, that's my kind of reflection for the week. The budget is on Wednesday. Some of you might be listening to this after the budget, a lot before the budget. Um, either way, we might have more reflections on it uh, next week. And I'm sure you'll have some questions. But in the meantime, let's go to your questions right away. They are so good. I'm leaving a bit more time for them. I'm sorry if I don't read them all out, um, but I get them all, read them all, uh, and uh, some of them will be read next time, if not this time. Okay, so Steve Petrie writes, uh, this is related to what I've just been talking about. I was listening to another podcast the other day. What? Steve, come on. 
you know, just focus on this one. I mean, please. But anyway, it included a readout from a focus group of potential swing voters from the East Midlands. What struck me was their broadly positive view of Boris Johnson and his performance since entering number 10. Their view of Starmer, on the other hand, was excoriating. One of the milder observations made by nearly all of them was that he should stand down immediately. Was that one of the milder ones? My God, I'd hate to hear what the uh, more severe ones were. Anyway, Steve says, what on earth is happening? Am I completely stuck in a bubble consisting of people who follow politics too closely for their own health? Or do large swathes of the electorate remain committed to Johnson and his promises because if they were mistaken in backing him, the consequences would be too bad to think about? Well, on, uh, yeah, great points. Uh, On the Keir Starmer ratings, I think I've kind of uh, addressed it, Steve. You know, there's a broader issue to be extrapolated. I think there is... uh, a clarity to what Keir Starmer would like to do uh, if he were Prime Minister. But it has to be interpreted from fairly uh, or too carefully worded assertions which are aimed at not offending anybody. Um, Now that's, you, you know, and there needs to be a way in which arguments are made clearly, accessibly, and with, I think, a forceful wider appeal. I've I've just said how you could make it appealing to those who uh, seize on the word freedom, uh, like Boris Johnson does, um, to pose the word freedom in a more collective context, for example. I think that could be done on the economy, on public services. I think he's got some good ideas on public services. Um, but I think, for example, at the party conference, that was all lost by a decision to make it about uh, the taking on of a section of the party. So all voters noticed was division. And I'm in a minority, but I think the jeers he got during the speech were not helpful. People will have seen it on the news and just thought, oh, even his own party are jeering. Um, I, you know, the commentary always get this wrong about Labour, saying, oh, this shows, this will help him, you know, tough, leaderly, strong. It doesn't. And, and, and that goes to your other point. We are not typical, sadly, in the way we follow politics closely um, and know a wider context and why and all the rest of it. Uh, most don't, you know, they, and they could do. It's not that they're stupid or anything like that. They could easily do so, but they choose not to. I hear people, when I go to see Spurs play, I'm a season ticket holder at Spurs, these brilliantly insightful exchanges about what's wrong with Tottenham, what's right with Tottenham, the team, I mean, not the place. Um, And I I sometimes say, God, I wish they would apply this obsessive interest to politics and they would, you know, reach all sorts of interesting insights and conclusions. Uh, But we do that and and most people don't. But the other thing is Brexit. Brexit was a moment where voters felt, uh, or some voters felt, that they were being consulted for the first time, quite wrongly, the endless elections where they can assert their will. Um, and they 
produced a result which was for Brexit, and they think Johnson is one of the only ones who delivered it for them. Um, now, all of that is, as we all know, far more complex and nuanced, but I think that explains some of the identification with him. Uh, yeah, what a focus group that must have been. Uh, by the way, that's the other thing. Don't listen, if you're a politician, to focus groups. Really, it just leads to paralysis. Um, there are ways of framing arguments that engage with most voters. Most voters aren't brutish, stupid thugs. They have a capacity to engage, but you must turn to them and engage. Um, as I say, the successful leaders are partly, only partly, political teachers. Okay, uh, Noah Keats writes, I'm writing to us about how politicians have tried to reform the police and whether they can ever be successful. In light of the horrific murder of Sarah Everard in particular, politicians have stated the Metropolitan Police needs change. Do you think this can happen? I'd be interested specifically on whether you think police and crime commissioners introduced by Theresa May as Home Secretary help to make the police more accountable. I happen to believe they're a complete waste of money and just an extra layer of bureaucracy. Yeah, I agree. And it's one of the examples of the what's wrong with the running of the police at the moment. Um, whenever you ask, oh yeah, so who is accountable for what? in any public service, the health service, the BBC, the police. And if the response begins, well, it's all a bit complicated, you know reform is needed. And that applies, by the way, in all three of those. Uh, the NHS, which became far too atomized, um, The BBC, where there's this army of senior managers, you, you, you know, the, trying to work out who is responsible for what is impossible. And that gives them a cocooned layer to um, become a curious mixture of complacently detached from the output and deeply neurotic about the output. Uh, more of that when we spend an episode reflecting on the new head of news and current affairs, etc. Um, but with the police, yeah, the crime commissioners is just another... So who is responsible for what? Um, and that applies to the Metropolitan Police, where the Mayor of London and the Home Secretary both have some input, um, and but there are other layers well beyond that. And the, it needs to be, forget those elected commissioners, was it just, it was a David Cameron idea, actually, or a Steve Hilton idea that Theresa May had to enact I don't know how enthusiastic she was uh, but I agree they should go and there should be absolute clarity is it the Home Secretary is it the Mayor of London to whom ultimately the Met is accountable when it's both it starts to get all blurred and that's only one example of the blurred lines of responsibility within the Met okay thank you uh, Noah Paul uh, Stakelis I think that's the pronunciation let me know if that isn't right, Paul. Um, God, we could go on about this for a long time. But regarding the points made in your last podcast about the Iraq war, 
I still don't understand what Tony Blair thought he and the UK would gain from his unequivocal support of America. He ended up selling his own reputation despite other significant achievements, most notably the Good Friday Agreement, and the country gained nothing. Indeed, the risk of terrorism increased. Most people, particularly Middle England, opposed this war and even marched against it. Uh, and, we, and we were not influenced on this by the propaganda in the Murdoch press. By contrast, Harold Wilson's refusal to get involved in the Vietnam War did the UK no harm at the time and has enhanced his reputation since. Do you think Blair had a touch of megalomania, an obsession with being at the top table? I don't think it was that. I think it was almost the opposite, Paul. I think it was insecurity uh, that drove him to that unyielding alliance with uh, the Bush administration in the build-up to Iraq. I've said it before, um, to understand Tony Blair, you have to, he was a world expert on the 1980s in British politics. He was not a world expert on the Middle East. And one of the disingenuous things he has said since is, look, you know, if we knew how divided Iraq was, you know, and the chances of civil war, we, you know, we only found this out afterwards. Well, actually, loads of experts were warning him that this would trigger a kind of civil war in Iraq. But he chose to ignore that. He, he, he had the forensic intelligence to master all the implications. But he couldn't do that because he had made a fundamental decision. He was not going to break with the United States. Now, that was partly uh, because he had found within himself, uh, after the whole situation um, with other kind of military adventures, a, a, a supporter of in war as a form of liberation. There was a kind of theoretical concept there. But it wasn't just that. Um, because, as I say, he had the forensic capacity to be fully aware of how, how dangerous and counterproductive this could be. But he was never going to break with the United States. In the 80s, America, uh, sorry, Labour was seen as anti-American and it lost elections. Uh, Rupert Murdoch and his newspapers would have deserted him if he hadn't uh, backed the United States. And these other considerations... Um, there were more, it wasn't just electoral and electorally strategic calculations, but they played a part. Um, and it was a genuine dilemma. Politics is, is at its most, at its sharpest, when prime ministers or leaders of the opposition face genuine dilemmas. In other words, if Blair hadn't backed the war, it would still have happened. Bush would have gone in unilaterally, uh, if needs be. Uh, we know that for, on many grounds, but one of which is we know Bush told Blair, look, we'll, we'll go without you. This is proving so difficult for you. We'll go without you if you want. Um, and so, there were, you know, it would have still happened. The Labour Party would have split either way. If he had opposed it, the Atlanticist wing of the Labour Party would have split. But Wilson, who in many ways was an has become an underestimated Labour figure, took the bigger and bolder decision um, to not get involved. And 
uh, and that's greatly to his credit. And I think he would have found a way of not getting involved in Iraq. Um, but those what-ifs are impossible to quantify. So those are my reasons. And by the way, I think on the electoral side of things, he was hugely influenced by the Falklands and its electoral impact on Thatcher. And I think he calculated that once Saddam fell, as he was bound to, when you're up against America, you're not going to win. Um, I think he thought it would be more popular than it turned out to be. Um, okay, our reg now this is really interesting. Uh, our regular correspondent from France, Dominique Jewell. This is where our global audience, um, some, something has just fallen off the table, by the way, if you're getting background noise here. Um, because we can get a global perspective of things. This one in France. Um, uh, she writes, the current government consists, oh, she had heard this observation, the current British government consists of a couple of journalists and a hedge fund manager. It's true. That is very important in understanding this government. Boris Johnson is basically a journalist. Michael Gove is basically a journalist. And Rishi Sunak is a hedge fund manager to the end of his fingertips. Uh, but they think they know better than the medical experts vis-a-vis -vis the virus. And she notes that this comment from an evidently disgruntled voter set me thinking. What I wondered, if any, is the correlation between the educational professional qualifications and the portfolio responsibilities of government ministers here in France. Now, this is really interesting. I didn't know this. So she says in France, Verat, Javid's opposite at health and social care, is a practicing neurologist and has a postgraduate degree in contemporary politics. Uh, Der Normandy, opposite number of George Eustace, agriculture and food, has a degree in agricultural engineering, specialising in forests and waterways, and an MBA. Le Drian, opposite of Liz Truss as foreign secretary, has a master's degree in contemporary history. So it would seem that there is at least an expectation in France, currently for those in high office, to have some previous expertise in their respective fields of responsibility. Is the current UK government an exception in this regard, or have previous UK governments demonstrated more respect for professional competence when assigning ministers to their portfolios? The answer, Dominica, is it's very unusual for a British government to be dominated by journalists and hedge fund managers. Um, but no, no. One of the interesting things about British politics is the lack of specialist expertise uh, when cabinet posts are assigned. Um, and it's an absolute common pattern. And I didn't know that in France there was such a correlation between specialist interest or qualification and the remits they are given. Now, here's another question. Does it lead to better government? Um, we can see that a bunch of journalists being in charge leads to total chaos uh, in the UK. Um, but what about the input of specialists when they move into politics? The only thing that has happened here, there was a big attempt by New Labour to bring business leaders into government, uh, and it failed totally. Um, they, they, none of them could master the politics. Uh, but that's really interesting. I didn't know that that was the case in France.
Uh, Stephen Lamb writes, I firmly agree with you in principle that politics is a noble vocation. And nothing I read about Joe Cox or David Amos, uh, or for that matter, James Brokenshire, contradicts that. But I do wonder, sceptically, cynically even, whether nobility is the touchstone of our present Prime Minister's career path or that of several members of the Cabinet. I don't think you need to wonder too much. Um, uh, it's, it, it's not, and it's very interesting, and it's relatively new uh, that you've had people like David Cameron and Boris Johnson uh, who basically regard politics as a game that they want to win um, and are clearly intelligent, well-educated, but fundamentally politics is a game and they want to win. Um, and there's a shallowness around that is, I think, quite new. Um and uh, anyway, Stephen Lamb says, thank you again for your shrewd observation of a political era, which, as a late editor of Wisdom Cricketer's Almanac once wrote, touches the confines of lunacy. That's a great phrase, isn't it? I can imagine William Keegan in The Observer, or do you remember that columnist, Alan Watkins, saying that touches the confines of lunacy? Um, oh, Stephen also writes, I'm delighted to advise that my nephew, Charlie Knight, has joined your audience in his first year at university. I wish I could say this was on my recommendation, but I only discovered it from a text asking whether I put a question to you. Uh, well, Charlie, let's hear a question from you, please, as soon as possible, or when you're up for it. Um, and Stephen said, may I suggest Bristol as a potential live venue? That's a good idea, actually, Stephen. Uh, or Bath. Oh, no, no, you're saying Bristol. And Charlie would come down as he's just up the road in Bath. That sounds good. Uh, let me know what you think. I might look into that. Bristol would be a good one. Uh, but it's the Barnard Castle special first on November the 6th. Um, thank you. Uh, Theo Barclay. Uh, thank you for the podcast. Uh, I listened to it last week while climbing up Mount uh, Toubkal in Morocco. And it helped me stave off the altitude sickness in the last half an hour. I think this podcast does have that kind of help. Any of you listening, climbing mountains, uh, you'll be fine listening. What a great place to listen, Theo. That's 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 a really cool context to listen to the uh, podcast. And I, I'm delighted you didn't get altitude sickness as a result. Um, Theo wondered, as he approached the top of his Moroccan peak... Uh, I wanted to ask you why the Labour Party is addicted to mythologising its electoral defeats. The most recent example is 2017, which many Labour figures claimed as a victory, and the Labour left still parade as a triumph of socialism. Even Starmer, in a previous incarnation, said that the 2017 manifesto should be considered a foundational document. This is despite the fact that while impressive in its defiance of low expectations, in 2017, Labour ended up 55 seats behind the Tories. Well, Theo, it's interesting, I, you know, how can I challenge you with, as you climb mountains and so on? But I continue to be of the view, I suspect I'm in a minority on this podcast, who do think uh, 2017 uh, was a remarkable success for Labour, even though, of course, they lost, you know, you know you have to be bloody stupid to think they won um but and i know what you mean about it being portrayed as a victory but it still shouldn't be airbrushed out of history that election it was really interesting 
Theresa May began it 20 points ahead. No one was expecting it to her great credit. She had kept it quiet when she decided to do it and the secret was kept until she announced it. And most people I bumped into in the commentariat and you know the BBC assumed uh, a big majority at the very least were the Conservatives. So to wipe that majority out and make gains with a manifesto dismissed as one to the left of Fidel Castro uh, by the media is, is, I think, something interesting was going on in 2017 that has not been definitively explained. Um, it was an election about the role of the state. Uh, the Tory manifesto written by Nick Timothy, who I think is an interesting Tory figure, talked about the good the state can do for the first time since the sort of kind of Macmillan Heath era. It was a very interesting election. So I kind of disagree, but I know what you mean, that uh, the Labour victories are somehow dismissed as some terrible error, and some of the defeats can be uh, mythologized. Um, but uh, so thank you for that. Keep, uh, are you back from Morocco? Or are you kind of climbing other, making other ascents, Theo? Anyway, keep in touch. Uh, Hugh Carr writes, uh, just finished the BBC series on Blair and Brown. And I agree with your assessment that it doesn't really tell us anything new. The Iraq war episode in particular wasn't new and only tenuously linked to the TBGB theme. For me, too much of it was horse race stuff with little analysis of policy difference, debate, tensions, which were sometimes creative, uh, uh, sometimes not. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's... Um, uh, yeah, I, I kind of um, agree with you, as you know, about it. Um, and I think that uh, it was, um, it's partly telly. You can't do much analysis on television. You have to keep the thing fast moving and you're dependent on pictures. And in a way, they dealt with that rather well in allowing the people to speak for themselves. Um, but... I kind of think it reinforced cliches rather than challenged them. Um, and I, But, God, people rave about it. Um, so it clearly gave... I, but I, mind you, I think people like their stereotypes to be reinforced. We probably all do. Uh, uh, thank you, Hugh. Uh, now, this one is... Uh, the next one, we're, we're on to electoral reform again. Da -da -da -da. Uh, professor Tim Dawson, he's a professor of neuropathology. Uh, writes in favour of proportional representation. Last week we had a question uh, from a listener in Belgium who says the problem with electoral reform is all the discussions take place after an election and ultimately a coalition is formed that no one voted for. Uh, and I kind of agree with that. But uh, anyway, Professor Tim Dawson writes... Multi-party PR and the subsequent horse trading to form a government is more visible. Voters actually see parties who represent their diverse views on the political stage. This promotes interest and engagement. The greater this happens, uh, it also means that only policies supported by the coalition majority get traction. On the whole, this will favour issues such as health and social care, environment, fiscal strategies, which need long-term planning and follow-through, which currently doesn't happen. 
uh, he points out there's a swing one way and then the other and, it's, and there's no long-term planning. I thought the Cameron Clegg government was good precisely because they could only get common interest through accepting the student fees debacle. Uh, yeah, although what about the health reforms which are now being reformed themselves? Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about that. Um, but um, uh, this bit I, am, I agree with. It saddens me to find out how disengaged and disinterested the majority of the population is towards politics. I agree that the route to PR in the UK is unclear, but it seems that the mother of all parliaments is close to its sell-by date, and there needs to be radical constitutional reform. If I thought it would generate a great increase in interest in politics, I would be with you. Um, I, I'm not sure it would, to be honest. I think the disengagement is a kind of default position, certainly of the electorate in England, um, and it's a real, real problem. I agree with that. But anyway, listen to this. Uh, uh, Professor Dawson, Tim, how should I call you? Uh, we live in the beautiful forest of Boland. I know it, outside Lancaster. And I've been listening to the podcast, walking to work or doing the housework. And it's great. Oh, thank you. Uh, my jaw dropped at your recent postulate on the government's post-Brexit Benite Thatcherism. Uh, and so, yeah, well, that was, yeah, was it last week I put forward the proposition that part of Johnson's thinking was Benite, um, as in Tony Ben, um, but only part. It's all over the place. Um, yeah, well, the Forest of Bone, I think that is as exciting a context to listen to the podcast as climbing a peak in Morocco. Um, so thank you. Thank you very much. And there's another one on PR, and I promise you, it really gets me thinking when I hear the case for it. Uh, and this is from uh, Mark Hawes, a regular correspondent in Switzerland. Uh, uh, Mark says, congratulations last, on last week's show at Kingspace. Oh, thank you very much, Mark. Uh, it was our first participation since you came out of lockdown, and it was great to see you re-energised. Oh, my God. Sounds as if I was very run down by the end of lockdown doing all those streams from my boudoir. Oh, yeah, Mark, Mark says I've been released from the boudoir and in front of a live audience. There was a real zip to the performance. Oh, thank you. Well, that's a great review, Mark. Thank you very much. The next one, in terms of King's Place, Thursday, December the 9th, live stream and live at King's Place. Uh, but before that, in November, uh, the Barna Castle special. Anyway, Mark says, in the latest podcast, you invited challenges to the negative view of PR provided by David Bentley in Belgium. Yeah, I mentioned that. Uh, in, in response to Tim Donovan. Uh, sorry, Tim Dawson. I do apologise, Tim, if I said uh, Donovan. It's my eyesight um, and bad writing. Anyway, in the latest podcast, you invited challenges. Yeah. To me, the greatest advantage is the fact that the number of parties generally expands under electoral PR and thus requires compromise and time to form governments. Yeah. Um, do you think it's an advantage, Mark? that expansion and time um he says that's an advantage rather and that was david's criticism it means that changes of policy and legislative action tend to be much more gradual than the enormous swings experienced in two-party systems like the us and the uk and this leads to less political grandstanding the trouble is with that again mark sorry to interrupt you um but Sometimes changes are needed quite speedily. You can see at the moment in Britain, 
the case for pretty speedy reforms in some areas. But anyway, uh, this is really interesting about Switzerland. In Switzerland, we have achieved this calming of the political maelstrom without PR, though having a government of seven ministers, federal councillors, drawn from all the major parties, five currently, uh, this federal council makes policy through compromise, which is then subject to a complex form of oversight by two parliamentary bodies, one representing districts and the other cantons. And finally, major decisions may also be the subject of referenda involving all citizens. Another thing you, me, remain sceptical of, I do, Mark. He says it's complicated, but it works. Yeah, I'll tell you my worry with it, Mark. When you have kind of five parties and parliamentary bodies overseeing policy decisions, I mean, I'm all in favour of scrutiny, but how do you kind of paper over legitimate ideological differences? Doesn't politics become wholly technocratic? I don't know. Just let me know, Mark, when you've got the time. Um, because, when, by the way, when it becomes technocratic, to go back to Professor Dawson's point, um, people lose interest. So people become even more disengaged. Now, that's probably not the case in Switzerland because you then have referenda, but there are other problems with that. But we don't want more disengagement, Mark. So anyway, that's, that's why I still have my doubts. But thank you for putting the point. Finally, we've got a question from uh, Caroline Morgan in Brussels, and she makes three points. They're so interesting. I mean, it's great to get to a very interesting perspective, uh, you know, still at the heart of Brussels, um, and uh, and yet Britain is out and in a battle over Northern Ireland and so on. Not, but Britain's not in a battle over Northern Ireland. It annoys me when the uh, BBC say we or the Today Programme say we are in a battle over the Irish Protocol two people are, Boris Johnson and David Frost. It's not the whole country. Anyway, Caroline says, I'm a long-time listener, but first-time correspondent. Uh, I love the podcast. Thank you. I await it with the eagerness that I awaited Top of the Pops on a Thursday night in my teens in the 70s. It makes me feel like uh, Noddy Holder, uh, who used to, you know, Slade in the 70s. Thank you, Caroline. Or, or who else? David Essex. I could be David Essex. Uh, thank you. Um, anyway, she says, I send greetings from a Brit working uh, for the European Commission in Brussels. Uh, what's prompted me to write is the, sh the shape of the botched Brexit is starting to become clear even to leavers. Yeah. 36% um, would vote leave now as opposed to 45% according to a Daily Mail poll. Yeah, well, if they, they dare put that in, there must be something in it. But anyway, these are the observations Caroline makes. It's interesting. The Johnson-Frosty Brexit negotiation was much easier than the Robbins-May one, uh, in part because Ollie Robbins, a far more astute and intelligent negotiator, absolutely, had to tread a fine line as he had to satisfy both Leavers and Remainers in May's government. Frost was untravelled untrammeled by having to account to anyone yeah yeah except for johnson who was just in color yeah, frosty yeah, yeah, yeah. also robbins who understood the eu much much better than frosty exactly didn't have a free hand as he always had to consult extensively before agreeing to anything may followed everything and had input when frosty took over and theoretically reported to johnson he no longer had to consult anyone johnson only barely following the details. Uh, 
Um, as Cummings has said, that has a ring of truth. So, yeah, exactly. One of the most bizarre things is that the substantial Ollie Robbins was scrutinised to death as he made his moves. Every single detail analysed with heated intensity in the British Parliament and was front-page news and the lead story on the bulletin every night. Then Frosty comes in, and as you say, no one scrutinising him at all. Um, and uh, the outcome was, well, as Caroline concludes, Barnier team happy to make concessions on language. Trade-off was that Barnier won in terms of substance. Absolutely. Makes me so cross I'm going to cough. Hold on a second. <coughs> Don't worry, I haven't got uh, the dreaded virus. And then Caroline goes on to uh, write, these days the UK seems to think the UK is obsessed with Brexit. And Mail Express thinks there's hostility on the EU side. Now this is really interesting. In my little corner of the commission, Directorate General for Justice, this is absolutely wrong. Whenever Brexit or UK-related issues come up, we bend over backwards to accommodate the UK. For example, on the data adequacy decision, relevant colleagues did all they could to ensure the UK got a positive reply. It is this dire, contrived narrative of Europe always trying to do down Britain that Caroline exposes as nonsense and yet is so potent in England anyway. That it, it's, it's all about that bloody Second World War. Um, well, no, sorry, it's partly that, you know, the Churchillian standing up to Europe stuff. Oh, God, it's so interesting to hear the truth. This is the great joy of podcasts. You can get to the heart of things. Her third point, there are still around a thousand Brits working in the European Commission. We never forget the 48.2% who voted Remain. We know how unhappy they are. We can't help hoping that the UK will rejoin one day. Maybe first Scotland, then reunited Ireland, then UK rejoins, perhaps via EEA membership first. We want to maintain a good relationship with the UK. This government isn't forever. When the dust has settled, it'll be time to rebuild a constructive relationship. Yeah, and she points out the bluster from Frosty will make it even harder to do. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he is a Brexit extremist. Someone who knew him when he was ambassador for Denmark said he was a kind of very non-charismatic, still that, kind of but mild-mannered figure but he detected a chip on his shoulder about being overlooked for bigger jobs in the foreign office and um, this courtier has found he could rise to the top via an extreme Brexit um, and it's it's going to cause problems it's going to take years to unravel I suspect Caroline um, but uh, anyway, um, and yeah, and of course now Labour not mentioning it makes it hard for them suddenly to get into a more practically sensible place with all of this. Um, and she ends by saying, I know you like to hear what people are doing while listening in. I'm often listening while in the bath. Or is that too much information? No, it's, that's a great place to listen. Great place. I listen to podcasts in the bath. Not this one. That would be a bit weird. Um, but thank you so much for writing. Caroline also suggests a live show in 
uh, Brussels. That'll be good. That would be really good, actually. But in the meantime, just a reminder, the next live show is at the Witham Arts Centre in Barna Castle. So all of the, you listening in the northeast, make a weekend of it. The Barna Castle, by the way, it's next to Specsavers. You can't get more Dominic Cummings-esque than that. Um, and then the one after that is on December the 9th at King's Place. And that is it. Uh, we've been going for uh, nearly an hour. Those of you running will have, God, you'd have run miles uh, in that time. Uh, do keep the questions coming. Sorry if I didn't get to yours this week. I will over time. I read them all anyway. Um, and it forms my ideas about the kind of talks we have together. Uh, just a reminder of the email address. It's steverick14, steve, then R-I-C, 1-4, at iCloud.com. And yeah, well, budget week, and um, there will be tons to reflect on, no doubt, when we get our time together next time. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Bye. Bye.